Hello and welcome to Never a Dull Moment, a talk show and podcast for angels and founders. Ziad of Boston Harbor Angels, his co-hosts and his guests have fun discussing and debating all topics from the world of startups and entrepreneurship. Enjoy. Hey Ziad, how's it going? Hey Marianne, how are you? Happy holidays. Same to you. Look at the three of us. Huh? Travel buds. Jet setters ready to take on the world. The three of us? Yeah. You, me, my emotional support puppet, Gareth. <laughs> you know I can't fly without him. You're a pretty lady, Marion. Okay, Gareth, don't be so saucy. I'm definitely going to need some wine on this flight. Yeah. Was this recorded in a live stage? Is it like, you know, the, when they say action and then you do the whole thing? Or was it a more simplest, simpler shooting? Well, okay, so two two different questions baked in there as I've learned about production. Um, <laughs> one is, no, it was not shot on a stage. And the reason for that is stages are extremely expensive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we actually, like, rented a home, like an Airbnb home to, for our set for the day. So, like, you know, that meant that if the garbage truck was going by the street and he honked his horn at the wrong time, we had to start again. <laughs> um, same thing for, you know, a airline flight. Um, the goal was to do this as inexpensively as possible while still being as high quality as it needed to be. Um, there was definitely words like, you know, action and, you know, rolling and quiet on set, like all of that did go down. So it was, it was Excellent. a pretty cool experience. Excellent. And so this is you, Elizabeth Banks, talking about all these these videos about Archer Roos. So when you first started working with Elizabeth, or when she joined Archer Roos, did you know you were going to be part of the production? <laughs> um, so the whole reason why I brought on Elizabeth Banks to be the face of the, you know, to, to, to Archer Roos was because I wanted her to be the face brand. Uh, and I, uh, cause I, I didn't necessarily look to be that. Um, and so I had no intention of acting. I've never acted professionally and I haven't acted from an amateur perspective, unless you count the plays, my cousins and sisters and I used to put on <laughs> for my grandmother at our family reunions. Um, we, you know, but as we were kind of developing what this partnership looked like with her, one thing she felt really strongly was that it be organic um, and that it really feel, since this brand had already been around before her existence, we had to figure out a way to like incorporate her in. And that is when this kind of whole concept of like, um, you know, the uninvited guest who comes in and falls in love with our brand and decides she wants to join the company kind of started. And then frankly, because of but, you know, and, and that was going to be the only one that I ever participated in um, was was uninvited guests because it was all about like, how do we make room for Elizabeth Banks um, in this company that's like, you know, been, you know, fronted by Marion. Um, but the reality is that like, but because of budget constraints, we didn't we can't afford other people to like, uh, you know, act off of her while complying with SAG rules, that's Screen Actors Guild rules, which she is a part of. And so that forced me to like, you know, 
come in and reprise my my role as uh, as an actor <laughs> in this gig. <laughs> And so we get just full disclosure for our listeners. Boston Harbor Angels is an investor in Archer Roots. So take us a little bit, to, a little bit to the beginning. What's it all about? Like, what is Archer Roots? What are you trying to accomplish? And what is the goal? Absolutely. Well, um, the whole idea of Archer Roots actually started around my dining room table. It was a Monday night, and I really needed a glass of wine after a long day. Uh, but I didn't want to have to open up a whole bottle of wine. And the reason for that, uh, I like to tell people is because, you know, there wasn't a great way to store wine if you're only having a great glass. But the real honest answer is that I was afraid I'd drink the whole bottle if I opened it. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, the, you know, the, that kind of started a conversation with my husband about, you know, why weren't there great brands in wine? Uh, that really allowed you to have a, a single serve option, or as I like to put it, a format to fit your lifestyle. The wine industry really pushes this idea of like the ceremony and circumstance behind every bottle, even though most of the wine that's consumed in the United States is consumed, you know, young, uh, you know, 97% is consumed 72 hours after purchase. It's less than two years old, and it's just to accompany a dinner on a, on a weeknight. So this really started us on this quest of how could we build a wine brand that's actually focused on the end consumer and not on these kind of preconceived notions that the wine industry has. And it kind of just distilled or can be distilled down to a couple of points. The first one was that we wanted to make sure that uh, we were really offering high quality wine that was terroir driven. So it could be a replacement purchase for a bottle, which we felt like didn't exist out there. Of course, there's boxed wine and other things. We're not the only canned wine option in the space, but we really are kind of the people who are setting the standard for luxury and alternative packaging. So we call that the people, place, and practices that's on each one of our cans. And that's really all about the terroir of the wine industry, but making it accessible for people to understand. The second piece was, was all about transparency. So what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, as, and I've only learned this in my quest to kind of design this perfect glass of wine, uh, was that there are 90, more than 90 different additives that can be put into wine that don't have to be disclosed on the label. And they include things like artificial food coloring, added sugar, animal byproducts. So we made a commitment right from the start that we weren't going to use any of that. And all of our wines are vegan friendly um, and you have the ingredients listed right on the back. And that's something that we're actually trying to get the entire industry to comply to. And the third piece was like, we we really wanted to create wine that was accessible, um, that would allow you to kind of travel and go on, on a journey to explore the world of wine, but in a way similar to how craft beer or craft spirits does it. So we really envision ourselves being that craft wine product. And that's kind of where this partnership with Elizabeth Banks and this our logo comes into play, which was we wanted to create a story of an international, you know, kind of adventurer and explorer who traveled the world. And her wines are these postcards to us, the consumer. And in doing that, you're kind of allowed to explore the world of wine in an easy and accessible way. And in the process, we can really break a lot of sacred cows because going going back to this idea of format, we're doing it in single serve in individual cans. 
And that is because sustainability is core to who we are. And the wine industry, 80% of the carbon footprint comes from packaging and supply chain. So we are really working on lowering that by getting, you know, not by the wines that we drink every day that are not meant to be bottled age should not be put into a glass bottle. So instead we we embrace an innovative supply chain and alternative packaging so that you can drink your way to a cleaner planet. From a dinner comes out a company <laughs> and and you just set out say like, okay well let me see where this goes and let me start calling some canning companies let me so and then along the way there's a pandemic then there is economic crisis then there is a war then there is a, a so so far how has it been like how would you describe the past i'm assuming it was what five six years They've been a roller coaster ride for sure. I mean, like I was saying, I just had lunch yesterday with a friend of mine. He's like, I'm just praying 2023 is back to normal. And in my head, I was thinking, what does back to normal even mean? I mean, between this war in Ukraine, to your point, the pandemic, before that it was tariffs. It's been like one thing after another. Um, but I think the, the thing that has really kept us going is one, just year over year growth. And feedback from the consumer, uh, which has just been like, where has this been my whole life? And ultimately, particularly if you're trying to change an industry, it starts by changing one person's behavior. And the feedback that we've gotten that like, man, this this really speaks to me is what has kept us going. And it's been validated, you know, with every major account that we've won. During this journey, do you feel that people now accept canned wine in a much, much easier way? Look, like I think we're seeing wholesale industry changes. Um, we have, so when I started five years ago, like I felt like I was laughed out of every room that I walked into. Uh, but what's happened in the last five years is a few things. One is that the cost of glasses skyrocketed. The second is that, you know, climate change and this idea that it's our individual responsibility that we need to take accountability for and make individual choices has really driven a lot of change. And that's when kind of the combination of those two things, we've seen the industry stop fighting against this idea of alternative packaging and really begin to embrace it. And earlier this year, Jancis Robinson, who's one of the most famous wine critics in the entire world, literally said, you know, canned wine has arrived. It's time for us to take it seriously. Um, we have our wines being poured at James Beard award-winning restaurants. We're available on, you know, major airlines like JetBlue. We're available at, you know, mass retail locations like Target. Um, and everywhere we go, what we hear is the same, which is, you know, the quality of wine that you guys put in a can is there. It's delicious. It's, it, it's better than a lot of bottled wine that's out there. Um, so the point is not, and, so you you have a high quality wine in a can, right? Absolutely. Quality has to come first. This has to be a replacement purchase. But the other thing that I would say that's changed the ad is like, look, you can put bad wine in a bottle. The format is just the format. What, what, you, what matters is like, how does the wine perform in the vessel? Because up until the 1970s, most wine that was produced around the world was not put in 
to a bottle. It was actually, you know, in a variety of different formats. And it wasn't until the global standardization of packaging that was brought on by U.S. Congress, you know, um, blessing the 750 milliliter bottle for taxation purposes that bottled wine became as ubiquitous as it is. So what we're seeing is kind of a reversal of this to reclaim a more ancient tradition of what's convenient for the drinker. Now, in order for the wine to be, you know, to stand up and to really be embraced, the quality's got to be there. And that's one, the quality of the wine that you put in the can, but also the op, like the process of how you can wine, which is different than bottle. And the reason for that is cans are hermetically sealed. They, um, you know, don't have any like light exposure because they're opaque on like glass bottles. And so they're actually a great way to preserve the freshness of wine, but you can't take wine that was meant to be bottled and put it into a can and expect it to perform the same way. You have to start making steps in the vineyard thinking this is wine that's meant to be drunk right away. So I need to be conscious of steps that I take here in order to make sure that I get that great glass of wine on the back end. And that's what we do differently. And I think that that knowledge sharing that we are doing as a consequence of that is what's driving change in the industry overall. So you stuck with four SKUs, right? How many wines do you have? We actually have six SKUs. Six um, now? Six, yeah. But but they are our core. We have core SKUs. And that is really aligned with our philosophy is on-trend varietals from the most marketable regions that those varietals are from. Uh, and we have, you know, sparkling is the hottest segment in the wine industry today. So we have a Prosecco and a bubbly and a Rosé Prosecco wine, which we call bubbly and bubbly Rosé. Then we've got a Provence style Rosé from France, um, a Pinot Grigio from Italy, a Malbec from Mendoza, Argentina, and Sauvignon Blanc from Casablanca, Chile. How did things change? And I know the pandemic threw a curveball at you like, like crazy. And can one order wine now online? Uh, it's just you were trying to get into restaurants, but everything has changed in the past three years. So wh- how wh- what changed from the past three years in how you sell the wine and and how you're trying to get to the, to market? Yeah, so we have historically built this company in what's called the on-premise. So that means bars and restaurants. Uh, and the reason why we did that was because we realized that except for super high, you know, except when you buy that $100 bottle of wine off the menu, um, most wine most wine programs are supported by your wine by the glass. And it's, it's actually a really unprofitable system for a lot of restaurants. Uh, they're very, you know, conscious of price per ounce. There's a lot of waste. Um, and so we went in and we really sold them on, here's a way to have a controlled pour, one-to-one inventory management, no waste, fresh glass of wine every time, and a great price per ounce so you can sell more. Um, that all changed during the pandemic when, of course, 80% of our you know revenue dried up overnight. But instead, we had to pivot hard. And we pivoted into D2C um, so that we could sell and ship directly uh, online to consumers and also into retail. Um, and not just any retail, but the other thing change that really happened during the pandemic was that consumers really started buying their wine uh, at grocery and mass retail. So um, that's really where we went after our core consumer. Uh, and, and over the last two years, we've opened up Kroger, Target, Cost Plus World Market, um, 
uh, Hannaford's and, and so much more. In states where there, there is there is liquor or wine at these stores, right? It varies from state to state. That's true. Basically, the whole country outside of the Northeast. The Northeast okay. continues <laughs> to be our independent darling. Uh, and frankly, it's also still where the most of our wine is sold through bars and restaurants. Through bars but, and restaurants. Uh, during the pandemic... Yeah. And, and through the pandemic, you know, we leaned into that still as, as takeout became the kind of uh, the norm. Uh, we encouraged, we helped our restaurants set up, you know, digital platforms so that like they could, you could add a glass of wine to your cart. And that was a can of Arturus. But I, I just want to go back to the challenges. I mean, what else can happen? I mean, it's supply chain. You had to deal with with that. You had to deal with the pandemic. So uh, uh, people don't understand how tough it is to be an entrepreneur and have to deal with all these challenges. And and what would you say to someone starting a new company right now? <laughs> don't do it. Uh, <laughs> no, look, I mean you have to really love what you're going to do. Yeah. Uh, you have, to, something has to drive you that is beyond reason because the only thing that really separates great entrepreneurs, or I should say entrepreneurs who are successful and the entrepreneurs who aren't. And in this case, we're just judging success by like, are you still here? Um, is persistence and grit. Uh, it's, you don't have to have the best idea. Uh, or you have, even if you have the best idea and the best team and you've raised a bunch of money, it's no guarantee. You have to be flexible. You have to constantly be willing to shift. And the only way that I can say that, that you, that gives you the, the strength to do that is really hone in on what your mission is. Um, and for me, like fundamentally, like a glass of wine to me was really about having this opportunity to connect with myself at the end of a crazy day, having the opportunity to split a can with my husband and catch up on our day, you know, while we, you know, gave our son a bath. And that those were the moments that really kept me going and made me realize that there was a place for what we were trying to do. And that's what gave me the fuel to keep going. Uh, and And ultimately, I think that's, that's the thing that that separates the pack. And uh, the simplicity also of the business, right? You didn't try to be everything for everyone. You stayed in your lane. So did you ever feel pressure to do more, to get out of your lane, to try to, to be something you're not? Yes. Uh, constantly, you know, in fact, it still, it still happens. Here's, a, here's an example. So during the height of the pandemic, I had a investor who'd written a pretty sizable check into our company, call me up and say, you know, you have to be, you have to go completely D to C. You need to abandon your wholesale business right now. And I I said to them, I was like, I'm just not going to do that. And they were like, well, why? The future is D to C. Direct to consumer. Direct to consumer. And I, and I said straight out at the time, I was like, I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe that. I believe that scale is achieved in wholesale. And ultimately the strategics are only interested in brands that can demonstrate that they can perform in wholesale. And so I, I'm going to use D2C to kind of get through the pandemic, but I'm, I'm most of my resources are still going to go to wholesale. And he literally said, you know, you're crazy. I, you're never going to get another cent from me and hung up. Well, you know, six months to a year later, 
we had launched into retail. Our business was up 100% year over year. And yes, my D2C comrades were doing pretty well. But then what happened in June was Apple kneecapped every D2C company across the board. In, In June of 2021, they changed their privacy settings. And it fundamentally changed the D2C landscape. And then in June of 2022, there were additional changes that were made that basically have dramatically changed the cost per acquisition for consumers and and the ROAS. And and frankly, D2C today, at least in alcohol, is completely unsustainable. And you've seen that as a lot of alcohol brands who are D2C focused have folded. And you know, wholesale is tough. It's a really tough business to be in. But I really feel like our business was validated in in sticking to our guns during through this pandemic and you know demonstrating you know what we could do and as a consequence you know that's how we got Constellation to the table uh, to become you know Constellation Brands which is a Fortune 500 company uh, and the largest publicly traded wine company in the U.S. is now an investor in Archer Roots. Nice. Yeah. So is your is your brand available everywhere in the U.S.? How many states are you in? Yeah, so we are, as of October, we're available in 41 states across the country and in targets across those states. And then we have, as well as increasingly Kroger and a number of other major retailers. And if you're interested in trying our Tarus, I suggest two things. You can either go on our website to find find us, uh, type in your zip code, and we can it'll populate where the stores are nearest to you. Or we also have our DTC, if that's more convenient for you, where we can still ship directly to your door. Looking back also as a female founder, because that's something important to to discuss, was it challenging? Do you find now things are easier for female founders to start a business, raise money? How has it been? Yeah, well, first of all, we definitely talk about female founders more, and we definitely talk about the problems that exist within making capital available. Um, but I, I would say the same problems for female uh, founders persist for founders of people of color. Uh, and, and I'm just looking at the numbers here. It's not, I know we, the buzz all around us is that this feels like all we talk about. And I've even had some white male founders who are trying to raise right now say to me like, oh, well, it must've been easier for you because, you know, the environment, everyone <laughs> no, wants not. to invest yeah. in it. And a female, and my and my response was the same. I was like, "Look, in 2019, VC had the highest dispersion of capital into female-founded companies at three percent. Three percent of total dollars that were invested 3%. went to female companies. In 2020 and 2021, that number actually went down and hovered at about 1.9 percent." So again, like the the reality is like the numbers don't lie. Uh, I would say that it's still a challenging time. Um, you, you know, and I think it, it it happens on kind of two different planes. One, there is a just it, an association bias, right? Like we for early founders, you know, you're you're generally raising money from people who know you because that's sometimes the only metric that you have to go off of to make a decision. And you know, a lot of the structures that have existed, you know, the kind of, for lack of a better term, I'm sorry to be pejorative, but the old boys network still still persists. And so that's kind of how a lot of early ideas get funded so that when you actually get to that series A, series B, just by the, um, 
you know, just by sheer math, there are just more male founded companies available to invest in. So I, I'm not, I don't blame any single individual. It's it's more of just like how we think through how companies are supported from end to end. That's what we have to do. And the reality is that I'm a privileged, you know, white woman. So I think the problem is even harder for women of color to get out, to go out there and do this. And when what we need what we need to do is not only talk about the problem but really assess the structural inequities that exist and figure out ways that we can combat them but i i can say that for myself what i'm really proud of is like i've started conversations among my my friends that i went to school with my friends that i went to summer camp with of like guys, let's build our, let's build the old girls network. Like, you know, we, we are a generation of women who now control our own capital. The way that we really create wealth is not by demanding a seat at a table, but buying it. And it starts by, you know, really supporting each other as, as we go out and we do these big things. And I think that's, that's also how these conversations start and how real inequity is you know begins to be resolved and of course this issue is complex on so many different levels but that's my my very surface answer in terms of how i see the problem and and how i hope that over time uh you know we as an investment community which you know i hope to join like we can all be part of the solution well also just saying like and then you know i, I one of the things that i've always been really proud of my association with boston harbor angels was just the extent of all of your support for female founders. Uh, you have a really diverse founder cohort. And uh, it's part of the reason why I love working with you guys so much. Yeah, and and then having role models, like having people like you out there will show example to others to 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 try to to uh, to do it that it is uh founders come in all genders uh, uh minority groups everybody can be a founder so that's that's a great great story if i could add one caveat to that it's not just genders and colors i would also add it stages of life i am yes. a young mother and i gave birth to my son during the pandemic and I actually credit my newborn baby, not just with sleepless nights, but with giving me the grit to want to succeed, even when everybody around me suggested that I change my business model or close my business or whatever. You know, the like, I think there's also a lot of fear around, you know, how does a mother also become an entrepreneur? And, and, and the reality is, is those same skill sets apply to both. And so it's it's that really diverse diversity in your founder set means diversity in life experience as well because it can bring experience perspective which I find really critical like I've had so many people say to me like how do you make decisions when your back backs up against the wall it's like well I always have options and at the end of the day I know what's most important in my life I know why I'm here I know why I'm doing this for my family and like that helps keep me level as opposed to being a founder where my entire sense of self-worth is tied up in whether or not the success of that business. And that would inhibit my own decision making. So I wanted to make a point for that in particular. And what do you do if you have a baby? You bring the baby to the meeting. <laughs> that is, 100%. Like, 
<laughs> that's that's that, what that's, the mute button is for. <laughs> yeah, and they put smiles on everybody's face, and we have a happier, more productive meeting. It's exactly. very, it's very simple. So, so where is the journey taking you now? I mean, it's very difficult to predict the future, or even we don't want to jinx anything. But where do you go from here? Well, the way that I I like to describe it is that 2022 was a great table setting year for Archer Roost. So we had our full year uh, of our partnership with Elizabeth Banks, uh, who has proven to be a phenomenal ally in helping us kick down the door of retailers. We've signed national contracts with not one, but two major distribution companies to help service the entire United States. We have turned on major uh, retailers and we have huge brand awareness opportunity with JetBlue. So 2023 is actually about focus, focus, focus. We know exactly where we do well. We know how to make sure that our product really performs in store. And it's about leaning in and being relentless with our stakeholders to bring them along and ensure that we're all investing in the same thing and we're rowing the boat in the same direction. So, you know, we, we've got, we grew 150% last year. The plan is to grow, you know, another 100% this year. And frankly, it's really off of, digging in and 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 leaning into our the existing infrastructure that we've built we have a lot of really exciting things in the pipeline that could you know get us and to another level beyond that but we always i always say we have to do our we have to focus on our existing business to make sure that's really humming along and that we're getting we're maximizing our growth there so that any incremental growth beyond that is that much more powerful excellent well i say cheers to that Cheers. And, and uh, I hope people on JetBlue look out for Archer Roos. Thank you very much, Marianne. Thank you so much for having me, Ziad. I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with your audience. Mm, you smell that? Dark, ripe fruit, juicy blackberry, and warm vanilla. It's like a goddamn drinkable candle. No. I can't say that. It's like nestling into your grandmother's bosom. Your grandmother's teat? It's like successfully robbing a bank. It's like a heated leather seat on your butt crack. That's not weird. It's like having a mustachioed barber whisper sweet nothings into your... What do you want from me? Fine. Archer Roos Malbec. It's very good tasting. Thank you for listening to Never a Dull Moment. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Have a great day and goodbye until the next episode.